All right. Well, we have been going through uh, this entire semester the doctrine of Scripture. We started off talking about what's called bibliology, which is the study of the Biblos, the book, the Bible. And we talked about things like, do we believe the Bible is inerrant and authoritative and sufficient, and what do those things mean? We talked about where we got the Bible and what books belong in the Bible and why we don't have the Gospel of Philip or something in there and all these other things. And then we started talking about uh, what is called hermeneutics. This is how to or the science or the study of interpretation. And so we're learning how to to interpret the Bible. Next semester, we're going to be getting more into the Bible itself as we start learning about the doctrine of God, and we talk about who is God, and what are his attributes, and uh, how is he sovereign, yet we still make real decisions, and all these kind of things. But throughout this little study on hermeneutics, it's actually been more theoretical, and we're shifting now into things that are more practical. So it started with these kind of philosophical questions. Who is the primary determiner of meaning in a text? Is it the author? Is it the text? Is it the reader? We talked about things like the storyline of Scripture, that if you don't know the storyline of Scripture, you will misinterpret it 100% of the time because you will make it something that it's not meant to be. It's all meant to point to Christ in this overarching storyline. We talked about our presuppositions that no Christian just goes to the Bible and reads it. Every Christian goes to the Bible and interprets it. We all have presuppositions. There are certain texts where I'm reading it in the Bible that I'm really hoping it says what I want it to say. And that's a place where my heart is trying to twist God's word sometimes. Sometimes that presupposition is right. I really hope this passage teaches grace. It does. Other times I'm hoping it's not saying what it's saying, but it is. And so we have to be very aware of our presuppositions and the things we bring to the text. But recently we've been talking about some more practical things. So Jeff talked about certain exegetical fallacies that we make, certain mistakes in interpretation. Uh, Last week, who remembers what we talked about last week? What is it? Genre, yes, that the Bible contains a bunch of different types of literature. Genre is what it's called, all right? You don't read Matthew the same way you read Revelation. At least I hope you don't, all right? You don't read Genesis the same way you read the Psalms. One is historical narrative, one is poetry, all right? So we talked about these different kinds of genres and how to understand and, uh, and interpret these different types of literature that are in our Bible. Our Bible does not just contain one type of literature. It contains a bunch of different types. We have songs and poems and apocalyptic literature and prophecy and parables and proverbs and all kinds of things. And so we talked about that last week. Well, this week... Uh, we're going to be very much in the text. You'll notice in your handout, I mainly just have a bunch of Bible verses underneath each rule, and I'm going to explain an example of where we make these mistakes as we go through these different passages, but we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. But I've picked eight basic rules for interpreting the Bible. So nothing super advanced, nothing super philosophical today. We're simply going to go over eight rules for interpreting the Bible. If you will keep these eight rules, things will go better for you in your biblical interpretation. Okay, now... The number eight here is completely arbitrary. Why not seven? Why not nine? All right? We, I don't know. I just decided to pick eight. I thought eight was great. All right? So uh, we just have eight. There's probably more than this. Some of these are kind of arbitrary, but we're going to go through them because I think that they'll be helpful. So does that make sense of what we're doing this morning? All right, I've printed out these passages. Obviously, you're free to use your Bible if you want to look up some of these things, but let's go over a few of these rules. And uh, some, of the, some of the examples I give in here will be Uh, a little bit, as I say, spicy, all right? They will be a little bit spicy, a little bit controversial, but that's what makes them fun. Nobody reads news stories or blogs or anything that just tell the truth. They believe that they read things that are spicy and exciting, all right? Uh, And so uh, I'm kidding. These things will also be true, but we want them to be entertaining as well. So number one, let's go over the first rule of interpreting the Bible. This is one that people accidentally break all the time, but here's the rule. Ready? If your interpretation would not have made sense to the original audience, it is almost certainly incorrect, okay? 
Is the Bible written also for us today? Yes or no? Yes, yes and amen, all right? This is not just some antiquated book. However, before we can know how to apply it today, it has to have made sense to its original audience. It has to make sense to its original audience, okay? By the way, that's true with other types of literature. The Constitution has to make sense to its original audience before it makes sense to us today, okay? Or some poem from Shakespeare has to make sense to its original audience before we can understand it today. So the first rule is that any interpretation you come up with that would not have made any sense to the original audience is most likely an incorrect interpretation. Jeff mentioned this when he talked about exegetical fallacies. He mentioned a Greek word, dunamis is the Greek word, and it means power, right? And what he said is that uh, we have a tendency, because we get our English word dynamite for that, to read that back onto the Greek meaning, as if Paul, who knows nothing about dynamite, which won't be invented until the 1800s, is saying the gospel is the dynamite power of God, all right? That's not what's going on. That wouldn't have made sense to his original audience. So we need to understand that before a text makes sense to us, we have to ask ourselves, would that have made any sense to people living thousands of years ago in a different culture, in a different language. Okay, so it's, we gotta be very aware of that. Let me give you a few examples. I'm gonna pick on the book of Revelation, not because the book of Revelation's bad, it's awesome. It's because it's the most misinterpreted book in evangelicalism, okay? So I wanna uh, pick on a few things. Let's read this passage from Revelation. Revelation 9, seven through nine. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like noise of many chariots with horses rushing in to battle, okay? So John here is seeing this type of vision of this kind of cataclysmic, earth-ending, punishment for the wicked, this kind of stuff, and what some people will do is they will say, this is a reference to Apache helicopters in the Middle East or something like that. Right? That's, what the, that's the sound of locust, an Apache helicopter. When the, the rotors turn, it makes the sound of locust. The fire coming from their mouth, these are, you know, missiles or something like that. Is John warning these churches 2,000 years ago about Apache helicopters? No, okay? That is why that is almost certainly an incorrect interpretation. Now, not everything in Revelation is in the past. It is written to churches in the past, so some of it has to be. But some of it is still future. Jesus has not come back. So we do have to figure out what Revelation is saying for us today, but we cannot do that until we understand what it means to John, what it means to John's original audience, the seven churches that he writes it to that are Christians under Roman domination. Does that make sense? Okay. So if you're wanting to understand what does he mean by these locusts, we need to do things like look at other apocalyptic literature. We need to see where this kind of imagery is used in things like the, like the book of Daniel or the book of Ezekiel, all right? Constantly in those books, beastly figures represent political powers, Things like this typically represent some sort of judgment against God's enemies, okay? So we want to interpret the Bible in a way that would have made sense to the original audience. Romans 13, 1 through 2. I'm not going to answer the question on this passage you want me to answer. I'm just going to tease at it, and then we're going to move on, okay? Romans 13, 1 through 2 says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, okay? To the original audience, they don't have a conception of a democratic process. To the original audience, they don't have a conception of no taxation without representation or anything like that. When Paul is writing this passage in Romans 13, he's writing it to Christians who are living under Emperor Nero, the crazy guy who fiddles why Rome burns, who has Christians martyred, who lights Christians on fire for his garden parties and taunts them by saying, you are indeed the light of the world. That's who Paul has said God has instituted him in authority. To rebel against him is to rebel against God. Okay? Now, 
What about things like the American Revolution? I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to let you wrestle at lunch on whether or not that's right. Or Obviously, God's blessed it. Obviously, God's brought good things from it. I want you to wrestle with that topic. The point I'm trying to make here is not pro or con that issue. The point I'm trying to make with this passage is to say we have to make sure that we understand what the original audience would have thought about. The original audience is not thinking about a democratic republic or something like that like we're in today. Okay? Again, I'm not answering that. That's a very complex question. We don't have time for it. So don't get mad at me one way or the other. Whatever you think my position is, you might be wrong. You can ask me about it privately if you want. Deuteronomy 14.8. Deuteronomy 14.8. And the pig, because it's, uh, it's part, it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Okay? So in the Old Testament, God here is giving all these commands of what kind of foods you can and can't eat. We have to ask ourselves, Why? When we look in the Old Testament law, Israel is told to do a bunch of things that seem really weird, okay? Don't wear this type of clothing with mixed cloth. Don't eat these kind of foods. Make sure you keep these days holy and do these kind of things. The reason that God is giving Israel those commands, this is important, ready, is to distinguish them from the other nations. God has elected Israel. They are special. And so what he is doing is he is making them live a lifestyle that shows that they are different from the other nations. That's the point of that. You have no idea how many people, a lot of times medical doctors, uh, that will write a book on biblical, like, healthy eating. And they'll say, we shouldn't eat pigs. And they'll give all these health reasons why you shouldn't eat pigs. That's not the point. The point is Israel is not supposed to look like their pagan neighbors, right? That's why they do these things. The reason all the men in Israel are circumcised is because that was a mark of priest. Like in Egypt, priests would be circumcised and all of God's people are to be priests and these kind of things. So, by the way, can we eat bacon today because Christ has come and fulfilled the Mosaic law? Yes and amen. Listen, if we couldn't eat bacon, I would be doomed. I cannot say no to bacon in all its glory. The point, though, of this passage is we have to say, wait, if somebody writes a biblical diet and they're saying the reason we should follow this and then they appeal to the Old Testament law, is that really why God gave that to his people? Is God just trying to get his people on paleo or Whole30 or something like this? That's not the point, okay? If you like those things, go for it, okay? You have freedom in Christ to pursue all kinds of diet stuff. But that's not the point of this passage. The point of this passage is God is trying to distinguish Israel from the other nations. You will not look like everybody else because I want people, when they see you, to realize something's different. And what's different about you is you are all priests and I dwell in your midst, okay? Okay, everybody good on, uh, on this one so far? It's got to make sense to its original audience before it makes sense for us today. Number two, this one's really big. Look for places where the text gives you the explicit meaning of the passage. Okay, so I do groups ministry. That's one of the big things I do here. And so I visit groups from time to time. And here's always what I see, ready? Anytime I ask a biblical question, I'll say, what does this verse mean? And people who have their eyes on the word of God where the answers are, they go like this. Hmm. And they start thinking and they start looking around. This is where the answer is. I want you to be looking down in the text. The text, a lot of times, will answer the very question you have. What does this mean? What is it talking about? The text will tell you. I'll give you a few examples. First of all, let's look again in Revelation 12, 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on its head seven diadems. Now, what you'll do is you'll turn on the TV late at night when you can't sleep and you'll see some TV preacher with a picture of a burning tank in the background, and he will say something like, the red dragon is China. The red dragon is China. Is that not their symbol? Do you not have a red dragon run down the streets in Chinese New Year's? Here's what's really, really helpful. Revelation 22. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The text 
tells us what this is. We don't have to wonder who the red dragon is. It will say three times it tells you. It says that it's the ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. It's very clear who it is, okay? Or a beast. When you look at beasts in Revelation, it will reference these beasts with these kind of different kinds of faces and hands and these kind of things. The book of Daniel does the same thing to reference political powers, okay? So look for places where the text gives you the explicit meaning. You have no idea how much ink is spilled over some of Jesus' parables, where then right after, the verse after, the disciples say, Jesus, what does this mean? And he just tells them, okay? So always look and to see if the Bible will actually give you the explicit meaning of the passage, okay? I'll give you another example. Matthew 13, 36 through 39. Here's an example of that. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Thank you, Jesus. That is super helpful. You just gave us this parable of the weeds and the, uh, and, the, and the wheat, and I don't really know what to do with it, but you have just told me point for point what each of those things stand for, okay? So always look and see if the text goes to give you the explicit meaning of what's being said. It doesn't always do that. Sometimes you just have to infer it from a small sentence. Sometimes you have to look elsewhere on what the Bible says. But a lot of times it will go on to give you the reason for something. It will go on to explain something. So always keep your eyes on where the actual answers are and resist the urge to just raise them and just think. All right? What we we want to do is anytime you have an interpretation of a passage, I want you to be able to prove it. I want you to say, I think this text means this, and here's why. Boom, 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 boom. Okay? Not just, I think it means this. That, that's, that, how do we know that we're right? We want to always make arguments, not just state statements, okay? John 20, 31. John, why did you write the book of John? How am I supposed to interpret this gospel? Look, he tells us, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Any interpretation you come up with from any passage in the book of John that does not meet that purpose is an incorrect interpretation. That is why John has written us this book, is so that we might love and know Christ, Okay, that's the point. Now, <clears throat> Romans 1. I'm going to get into a controversial one within our culture. Okay? Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations uh, with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, let me just address something really quick. In the book of Romans, what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to show how Jew and Gentile both fail before God, and so they both need the mercy and grace of Christ. He starts off condemning the Gentile, and then he will turn to condemn the Jew. His whole point is that all of humanity has fallen short of God's perfect requirements, so we need grace in Christ. When he starts by talking about the the condemnation of the Gentile in Romans 1, uh, he's not just here picking on one particular sin. The bigger sin going on in Romans 1 is idolatry. That's his whole point. His whole point is when you turn away from the creator God, you will worship something. The question is not do you worship, it is what do you worship. And Paul's whole point is when you start worshiping things other than God, you start becoming less of one who's glorifying God the way you were made to be, okay? And so homosexuality, in this case, is an example of that, that God has made man and woman to be together and to be attracted to each other and to follow these relationships in each other. When you forsake God and you worship other things, every other relationship in your life starts to become twisted, okay? Now, what people will say is they will say, well, Zach, I've heard a professor at Harvard actually was having a conversation on this, and what he had said is, well, Paul doesn't really have a conception of a modern homosexual relationship, which is based on love and commitment, and there's marriage, and there's not all these other things. 
that has, the, the way I know that Harvard professor is wrong is because Paul gives the reason right here. He doesn't say there are men with men, but they're not in these loving relationships and they're not getting married and they're not showing all this affection towards one another. His whole point is that, that homosexuality is a mark of idolatry, as all of our sin is. The more we focus on Christ, the more we are conformed into his image, the less we focus on Christ, our sin runs in a bunch of different directions. And so the reason that Paul gives is because he says that that's not the way it's meant to be. Whether it's in a loving relationship or not is irrelevant to Paul. The fact that it's two men or two women is what's important for Paul, and that's what he says is incorrect. The point I'm trying to make is not to get into an entire thing about homosexuality. It's simply meant to say the text here gives us the reason for this. The text here gives us the reason why this is wrong. It's not because it's not in a committed relationship. It's because it's linked to idolatry and it involves two people of the same gender, all right? Number three, I told you there'd be some spicy things in here, all right? There'll be some more. We're just, we're just at the tip of the iceberg, all right? What, what is he going to say? Is he going to keep his job? I hope so. Number three, avoid reading modern notions back onto the text. This is huge. We have a tendency to take things we think and presuppositions we hold and views we hold and read them back onto the text. Who knows what the name of that practice is? Jeff gave it to us a few lessons ago. Do anybody remember? What, what, there, there's, there's a meaning of a word to take meaning out of a text, and there's another word that means you're reading meaning back into the text. Who remembers what those were? There you go. Exegesis, eagaomai, right? Eagaomai, to lead out, and then ice, into, to read into the text. Uh, meaning. So exegesis means you read a text and you pull meaning out of it. Eisegesis is when you try to read your own meaning back onto the text. Exegesis, yay. Eisegesis, boo, it's bad. We don't like it. All right, we're always trying to avoid eisegesis when we come to the text. By the way, I always wanted to write a book called Exegesus, Exegesus, Finding Jesus in All of Scripture. I thought that was the most creative title. I'm sure somebody already has that. Anyway, so the point, though, number three, is avoid reading modern notions back onto the text. Let me give you a few examples. Acts 2, 44 through 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Okay? I have heard people use this verse to try to defend communism. Are the, are the apostles in the book of Acts that, by the way, believe in private property and have commands against stealing and living under the Roman Empire, concerned with, you know, 19th century Marxism, 20th century Marxism. No, that's not something they're thinking about. This is not something mandated by the state. This is something that the church does. We always confuse the roles of the church and the state. It's the church's job to share and care for the poor and live in community and do all these kind of things. And so what you'll do is people have a modern notion of some sort of political state that they'll read back onto the text. Again, this is not me trying to push a political view. What is the point I'm trying to push? Don't read modern notions back onto the text, okay? Don't read modern notions back on the text. We can do the same thing with laissez-faire capitalism. We can read that back onto the text. We just have to be careful either way that we're saying, what does this mean in its original context? Not, what is something I really care about and am passionate about today, and how can I find that in the Bible, okay? Uh, you never want to have this. I, I joke about this all the time with the guys on staff. I say, man, I've got a really great sermon. Now I just need a text to preach it from, right? That's a joke. Why? Because you should never do that. It's always God's word that'll tell you what you should say, not something you want to say, and you just find Bible, biblical verses to help support your view. So Acts 2 is not talking about communism. This is not a state-mandated taking of people's property. It's Christians living together in community and caring for one another. All right? 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
When it comes to divorce in the Bible, there is one exception that Jesus gives, which is a debated exception, but it is the idea of sexual immorality within marriage that allows for divorce, okay? Uh, There is another passage further on in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, not an allowance for you to get divorced. He's basically saying, if your spouse leaves you, okay? He's talking to people that got married, and then one of them has become a Christian, and they ask the apostle Paul, should we then get divorced because we're married to an unbeliever? And Paul gives a resounding no, Do not get divorced just because you're married to an unbeliever. He says, but if that unbelieving partner divorces you, that's what he means by leaves. Those are the same thing in the 2,000 years ago, right? If that unbelieving person leaves you, there's nothing you can do about it. If you're trying to make it work and you're trying to do this and they leave you, they divorce you, they walk away, there's nothing you can do. So he's trying to say, you're not at fault for that, okay? I have heard people use this text to say that somebody can get divorced for emotional abandonment, as if the Apostle Paul is like Sigmund Freud and now has all these modern psychological concepts of why you can't, when you're, if you're already married to a lost person, they're emotionally abandoning you all the time and they're spiritually abandoning you all the time. That's not Paul's point. Paul's whole point is, if you're married to someone who's an unbeliever, stay married. If they leave you, there's nothing you can do about it. That's all he's trying to say. He's not trying to now give you an out for what you feel like is abandonment. In the context, it's them actually physically leaving. Again, that's reading a modern notion back onto the text so that we can allow something the Bible forbids. So we can allow something the Bible forbids. Genesis 1, 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. Again, we can have a tendency sometimes with a text like this to read the idea of macroevolutionary theory back onto the text, okay? How many people before the age of Charles Darwin do you think interpreted the passages in the Old Testament, specifically in Genesis, to be billions and billions and billions of years. When the Bible says day in Genesis, they interpret it to be billions and billions of years. Do you think very many Jewish commentators read that that way? No. That's a place where we have a tendency as moderns to read a view that we have of science back onto the Bible and reshape the Bible after our image. It's Voltaire who said that God has made man in his image and man has been trying to return the favor ever since. Okay? And so what we have a tendency to do is we read this and we say, well, God just can't speak it into being and make it happen. I I believe in a certain form of macroevolutionary theory. And so what has to happen is there has to be billions and billions and billions of years of death and mutation and imperfection before finally God makes a mouse who works or something like this. Again, I'm not getting into the evolution debate. I'm just trying to say that's a modern notion that we're reading back onto the text, all right, that we're reading back onto the text. We have a tendency to do that. We as Christians can believe in what's called microevolution, that there are changes within a species, meaning you go to the gym and lift weights, and guess what? You get stronger. Moths who are in some kind of uh, climate change their color so they don't get eaten, and when they go to another climate, it changes their color. Great. Microevolution, no problem. Macroevolution is the idea that species changes from one species to an entirely different species, and that's just not... That's just not a biblical worldview. That's not how Jews are thinking 5,000 years ago about these things. They think that God, he's Yahweh, he's in charge, he says it, and it happens, okay? Now, we need to wrestle with those things. We need to wrestle with science. We need to do all those kind of things. My whole point in this example, again, is not to, my point in this lesson this morning is not to say, let's jump into the difficult topic of divorce and homosexuality and evolution and all these things. That's not my point. My point is to say these bigger debates we have a lot of times come from the fact that we don't follow some of these basic rules of interpreting the Bible. That's my point, right? That's my point. Number four, your interpretation cannot contradict another part of Scripture, okay? Your interpretation cannot contradict another part of Scripture. If you have an interpretation of something in the Bible and it contradicts another part of Scripture, 
that is for certain an incorrect interpretation. God is not uh, contradictory. A contradiction is a lie. We talked about that. If I say my name is Zach and my name is also not Zach and I mean the same thing, one of those sentences is a lie. It can't both be true. And so God cannot have contradictions in his word or else God is a liar. And so what I'm saying is that if any interpretation you come up with has to make sense with the rest of Scripture, Scripture interprets Scripture. We want to keep in mind that if we come up with an interpretation and you can find a passage elsewhere that refutes that, that is an incorrect interpretation. Let me give you a few examples. John 14, 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. So let's say you're reading that passage and you say, well, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. That must mean that Jesus is not very much God. That's a wrong interpretation, right? Because elsewhere Jesus claims to be I am and these kind of things. Elsewhere Jesus forgives people of their sins. He's claimed to be the word that was eternal. He's claimed to be before all things. In him all things hold together. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So any interpretation that you would come up with that would make Jesus less than he is is an incorrect interpretation. Again, context is super important here. That's not his point. His point is not to say, oh, I'm somehow now less divine than the Father. He's equally divine as the Father. There is only one God. His point is not to make a statement about his metaphysics or his makeup. His point is to say, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Luke 14, 26. I love this one. I love to just drop this on someone and walk away and just confuse them. Ready? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own, fa- his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Are we to literally emotionally hate our family? Hmm? No, right? We're not to literally emotionally like feel bad thoughts about our family all the time. I don't go, Katie's not like, hey, how was your day? And I'm like, I hate you, right? I don't do that. Jesus told me to hate you. That's not what I do, Right? Instead, you have to look at the context. That would be an incorrect interpretation because so many other times we're commanded to love our spouse, to care for our family, to care for aging parents, to pour into our kids, to not be harsh with them, right? So what is Jesus' point? Well, his point is that you have to love Jesus so much that even your love for those you love the most looks like hate when it's compared for your love for Christ. That's a strong command. That's one of those passages in the Bible I don't really like. Wait, 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 you're saying not just that I can love my wife at like a nine, but I need to love you at like a 10, but I need to love you, Jesus, so much that all the other things that I love the most in the world looks like hate when compared with my love for you. That's what Jesus is saying. The way you do that, by the way, is not by trying to love things you already love less. It's by loving Jesus more. It's really hard to kill passion. You have to replace it with a greater passion. So that doesn't mean where you say, you know what, I don't feel like I'm loving Jesus enough today. I need to be more mean to my family. That's not the point. You don't devalue your love for them. You raise your love for Christ. You raise your love through Christ, through the renewing of your mind to see how glorious and great he really is in his word. Okay, here's another controversial one. Ugh, what am I doing? Why did I do this to myself? I should have left this for Jeff. I should have given him this next week. 1 Timothy 2.15, how about this passage? Yet she, talking about women, will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Is this, bio, is this passage teaching that in addition to repentance and faith in Christ, a woman now has to physically begat a child or else she will not be saved. No, how do we know that? Because that's like super unbiblical in a bunch of other areas, right? We're justified by faith alone. This doesn't mean that like a barren woman is lost or a woman who can't have a child is lost or something like this. That's not the point. Again, that would be an interpretation that contradicts other parts of scripture. What then does this passage mean? Well, 
I'll give you a teaser, because eventually we might teach through difficult, tough text in the Bible, and I don't want to steal somebody's thunder. But the idea here is Paul has just talked about in this passage how Eve has fallen, okay? He just is talking about how Eve fell into sin. Elsewhere in the Bible, God hits the men. He hits Adam for sin. But in this passage specifically, Paul is talking about how men are to be leaders in the home and in the church because God created Adam first and Eve fell first. Whether you like those reasons or not, that's the reason the Bible gives. At that point, it then feels, if you're a woman, super discouraging, right? Wait a second. So I can't be a leader in the home or the church and Eve fell. Hmm. So Paul gives a word of hope. He gives a word of hope. He's saying, but if you will not act like Eve, if you will instead be a faithful woman, there's life and there's grace for you. This passage is not saying that a woman will be saved through childbirth, meaning that God will physically protect women in childbirth. That's one interpretation. The reason that one's silly is because tons of women die in childbirth, right, throughout world history, even who are Christians. Some people think the idea is that a woman will be saved through childbirth is that it's talking about the fact that through Mary, the Savior of the world was brought into, or the Savior of the world was brought into the world, right? The problem with that is in this context, he's talking about women plural, Right? If they continue in faith and love and these kind of things. His whole point is to say, though Eve fell, women take heart. Because if you will continue in faithful womanhood, meaning someone who trusts Jesus, loves their family, is respectful, is doing all these kind of things, part of that includes trying to fulfill this motherly role, whether you can or can't, is irrelevant. It's a heart that God's looking for. And so what he's saying there is that a woman will be saved through childbirth. That's what he means by that. Okay? We'll talk more about that if we ever do a... Uh, sermon on that. Uh, Jeff, I think, uh, is definitely needs to be the one to do that one so that I don't, people don't get mad at me. Okay, Jeff, keep, take note of that. Take note of that. Number five, interpret scripture within its correct genre, all right? Interpret scripture within its correct genre. I don't know if I said this last time. The French word for genre is genre, right? Uh, Carl and I were joking about this. D.A. Carson is a New Testament scholar, and uh, I really, really like him. He reads 500 books a year. Okay, so just read smarter than all of us. Just think that, okay, 500 books a year. There's only 365 days in a year. And he grew up in French-speaking Canada. And so uh, he says all these weird words when he's teaching like Jean. He kept saying Jean. I'm like, what is he saying? Jaw? What is he saying? He was saying genre, genre. He also says, he makes a joke, he says, I also say schedule, which I learned to say as a boy in shul, right? So anyway, genre. Interpret uh, the scripture within its correct genre. We talked about this last time. If you... Before you start reading a passage of scripture, you need to stop and you need to say, what book is this in and what genre is this? Okay, what genre is this? Because there's different rules. We talked about last time, you can listen to it online, of what those different rules are. For example, we talked about how Proverbs sometimes are absolute statements, right? When God abhors unjust scales. That doesn't mean you can sometimes cheat your neighbor. That's 100% of the time you cannot cheat your neighbor. But most of the Proverbs are general statements about how life generally is. God is promising something, but what he's promising is that these things will only generally be true not 100% of the time. That's not God lying. Uh, Proverbs is wisdom literature. It's not meant to just give a predictive prophecy of everything that's gonna happen. He's saying generally in life, this is how life functions. General wisdom principles are what are being given in uh, Proverbs. So we talked, for example, about the one last week that... uh, Uh, that if you train up a child in the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from it, and how we all know of examples where that is not the case. Here's another one, Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Is that always the case, that a soft word turns away wrath? That, That there never had to be any wars in world history? We could have just sat down and said, Hitler, I love your mustache. You're very smart. And I think everything would have done, everything would have been okay, right? Because a soft word turns away wrath? No. Right? Because these are general principles. 
They're general principles for the way God has wired the world. So it's not 100%. Most of the time, that's the case. If I'm conflicting with Katie or something like that, and I come up and I say, Katie, I am an idiot. All of a sudden, her heart opens. It's like the Grinch. It just grows three times. That breaks that little measuring device, right? Because a kind word has turned away wrath. And so generally that's true, but not 100% of the time. So we need to keep uh, in mind the genre that we are reading. Here's another one. Song of Solomon 4.4. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. If we take that literally, it sounds like this guy's making fun of his girl for her huge giraffe neck, right? Your neck is like a tower. She's like, oh, I'm I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's not his point. He's taking something in his context which is beautiful, this thing that that symbolizes strength and might and beauty and God's protection and war and these kind of things, and he's complimenting this woman. He's complimenting. We we talked about this one last week, how uh, one of the things in the Song of Solomon, he compliments that she has all her teeth, that that her teeth are like sheep come up from the washing, each one with its twin, each one with its twin. Amen. Amen. But if you don't interpret that within the correct genre, that becomes really, really weird, all right? That becomes really like, is this a love poetry or is this some sort of like, he's just picking out all her physical flaws, right? It's the opposite. It's love poetry, right? So it's meant to be interpreted within that genre, and it's going to use symbolic language. He's not saying your neck is literally a tower. He's saying your neck is like a tower. In what? It's hugeness? No. In its beauty, in its strength, okay? Second Samuel uh, 16.5, when King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah. And as he came, he cursed continually. Do we then read this and say, look, this guy curses in the Bible. We should be cursing each other out all the time. Do we do that? No. Why? Because the genre here, the genre of this passage is historical narrative. It's just telling us what happened. It's not saying we either should or should not emulate that. Elsewhere, I would say that we should not emulate that. Right? We bless those who curse us. We don't curse them according to Christ. And so, uh, again, that's part of Scripture interpreting Scripture. But one of the things I want you to see here is we have a tendency sometimes just to see things that happened and say, okay, we either should or shouldn't do those things. Well, it depends on the passage. In historical narrative, it's just giving you history. It's telling you the good and the bad. You're supposed to be able to discern what part of this am I supposed to follow versus what part of this am I meant to avoid. Okay? So when you get, uh, you know, Saul or somebody going to the witch of Endor, you don't say, you know what, I need to partake in necromancy or something like this, right? Some sort of, you know, calling up people from the dead or something. And so uh, it's just historical narrative. In fact, in that case, you're supposed to see what he does is wrong. You're supposed to see that he is, uh, you see the degeneracy of King Saul sliding away from doing what God has called him to do. Number six, pay, this is it. If you don't remember anything else, this is the most important part of biblical interpretation. This is everything. Pay attention to context. Context is king. Context is everything. Context is not just looking at a few verses before and a few verses after the text. It's looking at the bigger paragraph it's in. It's looking at the chapter it's in. It's remembering what book it's in. It's remembering where it falls across the scope of biblical history. It's remembering where it happens in uh, different eras of redemptive history. It's all of that is context. Context is king. Context is everything. Words don't just have one universal meaning. Jeff talked about this. They have different meanings depending on context. So if I use the word run, what does that mean? My nose can run. I can go for a run. I can run for office. Run can mean all kinds of things. How do I know what the word run means? It's not by just looking in a dictionary. You know why? Because it'll give me a bunch of different meanings. It's by looking in the context. If I say I was running for office, that doesn't mean you think that I'm like sprinting in a suit in my Nikes 
headed towards the office or something like this. That's not the context. We have to keep in mind when the Bible, this is, okay, I don't want to say that. This is something to very much keep in mind when we're interpreting the Bible. We have to, we have to pay attention to the context. The Bible is going to give us things in a context that is not like ours, and the job of us as theologians is to figure out, how do I apply that today? How do I apply that today? Okay? So the Bible's not going to say, don't do heroin. How do I know we should not do heroin today? Because there are other commands against taking substances that would produce you losing your mind, like drunkenness or whatever, and we apply those today. That's the job of the theologian. God gives us kind of this umbrella command, and our job is to figure out what that umbrella goes over. Okay? So always keep in mind, though, context. I'll give you a few uh, examples here. Jeff used one of these when we did our little uh, kind of demonstration of this. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Matthew 7 is now one of the most quoted Bible passages in the media, okay? At football games, they used to hold up John 3.16 signs, right? Somebody would be kicking a field goal, and you're like, hey, John 3.16, I know what that is. Now they're holding up Matthew 7. Judge not. Judge not. What does Jesus actually mean here? Let's take a look. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Is Jesus, in this passage, saying Christians should never say that something is right or wrong? No. How do you know? One, because there's all these other passages that, like, tell us to judge, like to judge those within the church. Jesus will say, don't judge, and he'll turn right around and be like, I hate you, Pharisees, right? And he judges them, right? So one, it doesn't fit with the other passage of Scripture, but even just within this context, what kind of judging is Jesus talking about? How do you know? How do you know it's hypocritical judgment? Yeah, he says, you hypocrite. And then he says, take the log out of your eye, then you can take the speck out of theirs. His whole point is saying, when there's sin in your life, you need to deal with that. He's against hypocritical judging, He's against the kind of judging the Pharisees are doing where they just condemn somebody despite the fact that they are full of dead men's bones. That's the kind of judging he's against. Not that we shouldn't tell people what they're doing is wrong or that they're in sin or that they need to repent or any of those kind of things. That's an act of love. If someone's walking towards a cliff and I say nothing to respect them, they die. That's not loving. It's loving to say, hey, I don't know if you know this or not. There's a cliff you're about to walk over that will super hurt, will not be a lot of fun. I'm gonna encourage you to turn around. Only God can judge me. And I'm like, He's going to, and I'm trying to keep him from doing that. I'm trying to have you add a little judgment now so you don't get a lot of judgment later, right? But this is the kind of passage that so many people will just take out of context. Here's another one. Judges 4, 8 through 9. This one's used a lot in uh, certain churches that promote feminism and egalitarianism. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. What's going on in this text is what some people will say is that, one of the distinctives, by the way, at Parkway, and this is something before we even came here on staff, this is something the elders already held, was what is called complementarianism, that men and women are completely equal in value, yes and amen, but that we have different roles, different jobs. That doesn't mean one is less than the other. You need both roles to function. Right? How are we to subdue the earth for God's glory and be fruitful and multiply by ourselves? We cannot do that. Right? We need each other. But what some churches will do that are not complementarian is they will say that there are no distinguishing marks between the roles of men and women. And one of the passages they use here is from Judges. And they say, look, God used Deborah as a judge. Therefore, we should have female elders. You already see kind of the logical leap they're taking. 
Well, if you actually look at the context here in Judges, the reason that God decides to have Sisera killed by a woman, a lady named Jael later in the story, is because of the weak male leadership in Israel. That's the whole point. Barak is cowardly, and he's not doing what he's supposed to do. And so she says, I'll help you, but you need to realize you're not going to get glory because you're being a poor leader. This passage actually teaches the exact opposite of what a lot of people think that it teaches. Okay? Here's another one. Matthew 24, 37 through 41. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now look at this next part. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. I have heard this passage used about the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture a lot in churches. According to the context, when you read around this, do you want to be someone who stays in the field or do you want to be someone who's taken? You want to stay because he just talked about people being washed away in the judgment floods of Noah. His whole point is that you had Noah and his family. They got to stay. Everyone else was washed away. In the same way in judgment, there will be those that want to stay while God washes the others away in judgment. It makes the exact opposite point if you look at context of what most people think that it means. Why do we interpret it that way? Because we come to the text with our presuppositions. We say, I've heard 100 sermons on this. I already know what this passage is talking about. So let me just read it now to confirm what I already know. We have to fight that. We have to fight that. In this text, the passage is actually saying, don't be washed away in judgment. Don't be washed away in judgment. That's all the language that's used, okay? And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. There will be two taken. There are two in a field. One will be swept away, okay? You don't want to be taken. That's the idea, okay? Number seven. Everybody good? So let's do this. Let's just take one of the classic Zach big breaths. We've talked about feminism. We've talked about homosexuality. We've talked about evolution. We've talked about politics. What are we doing in here today? We're dealing with the issues of our day by learning to better interpret the Bible, okay? I love you all. I'm super insecure. Let's keep going. Somebody write me a nice email. Verse seven, or number seven. Scripture interprets Scripture. This is a super, super, super important point of interpreting the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. Let me say it another way. Reinterpret less clear passages in light of clearer passages. Reinterpret less clear passages in light of clearer passages. Let me give you a little rule that we use in hermeneutics. Ready? If the Bible says a hundred different things on a particular topic, you reinterpret the one in light of the 99. You don't reinterpret the 99 in light of the one. Okay? If the Bible says a hundred things, I'll give you an example. Let's say the Bible mentions a hundred different times about how you're justified by faith. And then there's some passage that seems to say baptism or a woman being, you know, giving childbirth or something like this is what saves you. You reinterpret those less clear passages in light of the clear passages, not the other way around. When you do it the other way around, you become one of the cults. Let's ignore all these things these passages say about the deity of Christ because here it says he slept or something like that, right? That's what they do. They misinterpret. They take 100 passages about the same topic and they reinterpret the 99 in light of the one instead of reinterpreting the one in light of the 99, Okay? So the clearer passages have primacy over the less clear passages. The passages that talk a lot about one topic have primacy over the ones that just kind of an obscure comment is made. We use the Bible to interpret the Bible, okay? This is not meant to to just say, let's get rid of the verses or kind of smush them down that seem to say what's different. Our job is really to interpret those. But one of the ways we interpret those is seeing, is there a way that that can fit with what the Bible says elsewhere because we believe in inerrancy, okay? Because we believe in inerrancy. Does that make sense, by the way? Okay, let me give you some examples. James 2.24, 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. <gasps> That's in the Bible. Isn't that weird? That's one of those passages where Paul, like a thousand times, is like, you are justified by faith alone and not by works. And then James is like, grenade, you're justified by works and not by faith alone. What is going on in this passage? And so what we have a tendency to do is we see that and we freak out and we say, oh man, now what do I do? I had all this grace and hope in God, but now this passage seems to have destroyed it. That's what Luther thought. That's why Luther called the book of James a right strawy epistle. Luther was like, James doesn't really understand the gospel. We're like, Luther, his writings are in the Bible and yours are not, right? Okay, so what's going on here in context? We'll talk about this some next week, by the way, when we talk about the fact that we're saved by grace in our sermon. But in context, James is dealing with something different than what Paul's dealing with. That's super important, okay? Let's say that there's a boy who's 16 and somebody says he's a man. And another person says he's not a man, but they mean different things. One is saying he's male, not female. In that case, he's a man. The other group of people are saying he is not quite a man because he's only 16. He's still a boy. You see how they can both use the phrase he's a man and he's not a man and not be contradictory because they're meaning different things? Let me give that illustration again. I I need this to stick. That was really fast. I have a tendency to talk really fast. Let's say there's a 16-year-old boy and he's signing up for the military. And when they have to pick whether he is male or female, the recruiter says, he's a man, okay? Now, that boy's dad doesn't want him to join the military because that's his son. He's not a man. He's just a boy. They're using the phrase, he's a man and he's not a man differently. Does that make sense? That's exactly what's going on with Paul and James. Paul is talking about how one is not saved by trusting in Mosaic law. We're not saved or become part of the covenant by keeping circumcision and Sabbath and laws and all these kind of things. We're saved by faith in Christ. James is talking about something completely different. He's talking about people who have never been transformed by the Spirit. He's talking about people who say they have faith, but they have the kind of faith that the demons have. The kind of faith that, Paul is, or that James is saying doesn't save you is the kind of faith that simply says, I believe there's one God. He says the demons believe that. And guess what? You're acting like them. You're acting like them. His whole point is that faith has legs on it, right? To quote Luther, that we're saved by faith alone, but not the kind of faith that is alone. We're saved by a faith that transforms us. So they're not contradictory. They're talking about different things. Paul is saying you're not saved by Mosaic law. You're saved by trusting Christ. And James is saying if you're really a Christian, it will transform your life. Not because you earn something, but because the free gift of grace has been given to you, and now it transforms your life so you live a different life, okay? Two totally different contexts. I'm always so tweeted, or tweeted, so tempted to tweet this out and just leave it and just let people freak out. But I don't want to do that. That's not good shepherding, all right? It's not good shepherding. So that's what that passage is doing. Here's another one. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Again, we want to make sure that we interpret these things in light of other passages of Scripture. Is this saying that somehow Jesus is less divine than the Father? No, that's not his point. His whole point is stop trying to guess. Stop trying to guess when the end is. All right? The end has already begun in one sense in the resurrection of Christ, but stop trying to guess. Don't, don't get billboards and write weird books on things and create a zombie bunker in your house because you can guess when the end is. His whole point is you don't know. Let me Believe me, you don't know. His whole point is not that he doesn't actually know something in his divinity or that he's not actually God. That's not the point, okay? We have to make sure that we interpret it in light of other passages. Number eight, and now I'm going to say something controversial about tattoos. (laughs) Just all day. This passage is going to make parents in here hate me. If you're a kid and you're still under your parents' roof, you need to obey your parents. Now I'll say what I have to say. Number eight, pay attention to where the text is occurring in redemptive history. Pay attention to where a biblical text occurs in redemptive history, 
okay? Let me now read you a passage from the Mosaic Torah. Ready? Leviticus 19, 27 to 28. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Can you use this passage, which by the way, to my knowledge, is the only passage I know of about tattoos in the Bible, to say that a Christian today cannot have a tattoo? No, you cannot. (gasps) I know, I know, you hate me, parents hate me, your kids are going to end up super weird now, I know, I know, all right? Why? Why can we not say that the Bible forbids tattoos for a Christian today? Not saying that they might not be unwise in some cases, not saying that if you get lips tattooed on your neck, it's not going to be hard for you to find a job, right? We're not talking about that. What we're asking is, is it sin? Is it sin? What we have to say is no for a few reasons. Here's the biggest one. Christ has fulfilled all of the Mosaic law. Can I get an amen? Okay, Christ has fulfilled all the Mosaic law. You have to be careful. If you think that righteousness involves in any sense going back to Mosaic law, Paul says in Galatians, you have forsaken the gospel. It's that serious. We are not allowed to make any of our righteousness part of going back to the Mosaic law, whether that's not eating bacon or not getting a tattoo. Now, that doesn't mean you have to get a tattoo, just like you don't have to eat bacon, okay? The whole point, though, is that where does this passage occur in redemptive history? It occurs in Leviticus, that Christ is explicitly fulfilled, okay, on our behalf. Additionally, if you just look at the context, look at the first part of this. You shall not round off the hair of, uh, on the temples or mar the edges of your beard. I've met a lot of men with shaved faces and no tattoos who want to use this verse. Does that work? No, that's inconsistent. If you want to keep this verse, you can also not trim the edges of your beard. Okay? Not trim the edges of your beard. Additionally, look at the context in verse 28. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. What is that going on? The the reason this command is probably given originally in Leviticus is because the Canaanite nations would scar themselves and tattoo themselves and cut themselves, and it was part of pagan religious practice. It's not just, hey, I got this cool cross on my arm or something like that. What they were doing was explicitly, kind of what the uh, prophets of Baal, Baal, are doing with Elijah. They're crying out to Baal, and they're cutting themselves with rocks. And what this text is trying to say, you're not to look like the other nations. That's his whole point. You can't then take that and apply it today. Again, I'm not saying whether or not, again, my point here is not to be pro or against tattoo. I don't care. I really don't care. My point is to be pro-Bible. It's kind of like when we talked about sufficiency and we talked some about alcohol. The point was not to be pro or against alcohol. The point was to be pro-Bible. You wrestle with these things in your own consciences and hearts, but know that you cannot say that this is sin biblically. Exodus 20, 10. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Okay? So again, in the Old Testament Mosaic Law, we are commanded that we must keep a Sabbath. Originally, the Sabbath, Shabbat in Hebrew, by the way, means to stop, to cease. That's what a Sabbath is. It's a ceasing. And it was on Saturday. It began on Friday night when the sun goes down. And, uh, and they party, all right? That's how they kept the Sabbath on Friday night. They party. I was in Israel, actually, one time when there was the Sabbath, and I saw a rabbi in his 60s do a somersault. I mean, they just get with it, all right? They just get with it. So Sabbath was on Saturday, and uh, you must keep it. If you didn't keep it, you'd be cut off from Israel, and all these other bad things would happen. Now, compare that with what the New Testament says in these two passages, Colossians 2.16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those in Christ are not bound by the Mosaic law, any of it. Christ has fulfilled all of it. There are still commands we follow, but it's because we love Christ, not because we're bound by Mosaic law. Another one, Romans 14, 5 through 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Okay? Now, is it wise to rest? Yes. Is it wise to take a day off? Yes. Are we commanded to gather with God's people and not forsake the gathering? Yes. But does this mean that if you work eight days in a row, you have sinned? No. All right? No. Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law on our behalf. Okay? And then lastly, and then I'll have Jeff Ashley come up here and talk about women being saved through childbirth. I'm kidding. Uh, lastly, let me give you another one. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Okay? This is a new covenant that's made. And you guys will like this one because there's a bunch of Baptists in here, myself included. So we're going to talk about believer's baptism. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, one of the things that makes us distinctively Baptist is that we believe you should only baptize those that make a profession of faith in Christ. Okay? Pado-Baptists, those that baptize infants. This would include uh, Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and other groups and these kind of things, will say... We don't need a verse that t- talks about infant baptism. It's already assumed. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, he gives to him and to his, their, their children this mark and this covenant of circumcision. So I don't need an explicit passage that teaches infant baptism. Where did we lose it, they will say. If God makes a promise to Abraham and says, you and your descendants will all take this mark of circumcision and I will bless you, and the Bible says that baptism is like circumcision, therefore... We should baptize our infants. That's the argument, one of the arguments that they will make, okay? That, yes, they have some obscure references to household baptisms in the book of Acts. That's kind of an argument from silence because it doesn't say how old the people in that household are. So what they're going to say is, in the same way that Abraham was to apply this sign to his descendants and their children, so we as Christians today should apply this sign of baptism, which is kind of a New Testament circumcision, to our kids. Everybody with me on how the argument goes? The huge, huge, huge problem with this is Jeremiah 31 who says explicitly, there's a newness to this covenant. Not a newness just that one was promised and one is fulfilled. That's how they'll understand newness. There's a newness in quality of the new covenant. What, according to this text, is new that is not the case in the Old Testament? That all God's people will have the Spirit. That all God's people will know him. In the Old Testament, you have Israel. Okay, I'm gonna draw my little circle. I'll draw my little circles here. And then Jeff's gonna come up. And it's going to be great. In the Old Testament, you have Israel as a nation. Okay? Is everyone, just by being ethnically Jewish, saved? No. Okay? You have within Israel, green will represent salvation. You have life, right? You have a remnant within Israel, a true Israel, a spiritual Israel. Okay? So you, sometimes when Israel is used, it's used talking about the national element. Other times when it's used, it's talking about the spiritual element. Okay? Look at me, this is really important. In the New Testament, you only have this. You only have Christians who are regenerate. You don't have an ethnic circle. What would that be? When you say, well, I'm part of the church, but I'm not regenerate. That doesn't exist. 
Part of being the church is being Christ's bride, is being washed, is being regenerated, is being forgiven. There is no big external circle like this. To say it another way, the son of a Jew is a Jew. The son of a Christian is not a Christian unless they have faith in Christ. Let me say it another way. The promise given to Abraham is that they will become a great nation and that God will send a Messiah with them. Everybody get what the promise is? That they will become a great nation and God will send a Messiah, okay? Does it then matter whether or not that child becomes a believer or not for that promise to be fulfilled? No. This is why you can circumcise all the males because whether or not they're a believer or not in a sense is irrelevant to the covenantal promise which is that God's still gonna send a Messiah. There are unbelieving people in Jesus' family tree. The promise that baptism symbolizes is salvation. This is where there's confusion with when I talk to my Presbyterian buddies. What they will say is they'll say, Zach, is there some sort of covenant promise for children of believers? Tell me there's, there's gotta be something there. There's gotta be some sort of promise for covenant, the, the children of covenant believers. And what I say is this, that's the wrong question. The question is, has God made a covenant with the children of believers, which is what baptism symbolizes, which is salvation? No, God has not made that covenant with the children of believers just because they're believers' children. What I'm saying is there is a difference. Circumcision is not baptism. They are different. There's some similarities. The one place they're linked in Colossians mentions explicitly that we're raised through faith, all right? But the whole point I'm trying to make is circumcision marked that God would bless the nation and would send a Messiah. Baptism, though, symbolizes salvation. So that covenant would not be true of the infants of believers, Okay? would not be true of the, co- the infant believer. To say it another way, everything that circumcision is said to be, some of those things are true even of non-believing national Israel. Everything that baptism is said to be is not true of someone who's not regenerate. It's said to wash of sin. That's not true of an infant that doesn't have faith. It's said to promise new life in Christ. That baby hasn't even lived its old life outside of Christ yet, right? It's just a baby. And so it just doesn't, it's, there's not a one-to-one correlation. There is something that is new and unique, okay? Yes, God can have grace on babies, God can, have, God can have grace on whoever he wants to. That's not the topic I'm trying to get into. The whole point, though, is you can't take this out of context. You have to see where it occurs in redemptive history. There is something new. Jesus brings a new wine that doesn't fit in old wineskins. So whatever wineskins you have, it can't look exactly like the old ones. It can't look exactly like the old ones.